You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Hopefully you're getting the gist of the book of Romans down so far that, uh, you know, Paul speaks that it is uh, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, that we are justified or that we are saved or that we are made right and innocent before a holy God. So let me say that once again. It is by grace. That's a free gift. Okay, it's by grace, through faith, resting in the promises of God, faith in Christ. Romans chapter 1, we see that the the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and in their wickedness. Now, that's speaking to us who are here today, the wicked, the unrighteous. Paul shows in Romans chapter 1 that there's none innocent, that the heathen or the pagan or the Gentile is guilty of sin. And in chapter 2, we see that even the Jew who was born an Israelite of a tribe of Jacob, that he too is guilty of sin before the Lord. And in chapter 3, we see that the whole world has sinned. Every man, every woman, every child has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so how in the world is there hope? How in the world can one be saved and be made innocent in the eyes of the Lord? Well, we see in chapter 3, verse 20, that it's by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. This rightness, this innocence, it's apart from the law, and it's to all and on all who would believe. And the question was raised, you know, hypothetically, as Paul began chapter 4, well then what has Abraham found according to the flesh? What's up with Father Abraham? I mean, surely he's got some merit badge on his chest, right? He's Father Abraham. And so Paul said, you want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. Let's see if Abraham was justified or made innocent by his flesh and by his works and by his hard labor. And so he starts out chapter 4 by showing us that nothing that Abraham did made him right before the Lord. If it was something that he did, then God would have been a debtor to Abraham. He would have owed Abraham a wage. Abraham would have earned salvation. And it says there in verse, uh, what is it, two, that he would have had something to boast about, something to brag about before God. We know in the scriptures, in Ephesians chapter two, Romans chapter 11, that man, no one's gonna be boasting before the Lord. And the Lord owes no man anything. Okay? So we know from the first little section of Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, that it is not by works that Abraham is justified. And David kind of chimes in. Hey, amen. Amen. It's not by works that I'm justified. Man, I'm an adulterer. I'm a, I'm a liar. You know, I'm a murderer. It's not by my works that I'm made right. It's by faith. And David just sings a song, how blessed, how very happy is the one to whom the Lord does not impute sin or place sin into his account. So was it by works that Abraham was made right? No, it wasn't. And he takes us clear back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where God spoke a promise to Abraham that your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Even though you're 90 years old now and you won't be 100 years old till you do have a kid, he says, in your descendant, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it says there in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't a work It was by faith that Abraham was attributed righteousness. The next section, the next argument we studied last week was in verses 9 through 12. And the Jews would say, well, what about circumcision? Surely circumcision made Abraham right before the Lord. And then Abraham, or Paul says, really? Because if you think about it, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, 
Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for rightness. And it wasn't for, until 14 years later or two chapters in the Bible later that circumcision was even invented. So really, was it circumcision that made Abraham right before God? No, it wasn't. You got to go back to that it was by faith that righteousness was added to Abraham's account. And then the little final uh, argument that the Jew might bring up. Well, what about the law? We have the law of Moses. That is a big deal, man. Come on, Paul. Give us something. Throw us a bone. And Paul says, no, it wasn't even by keeping the, the law of Moses that Abraham was made righteous. Think about it. Go clear back to Father Abraham, chapter 15, verse 6. He believed in God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Two chapters later, or 14 years later, uh, the circumcision was given, and we know that that's not what made Abraham righteous. Then go 430 years later to Moses and the Ten Commandments. Abraham has been dead a long time since then. He didn't even have the law. And so it wasn't the law of Moses uh, that, that made Abraham right and innocent and acceptable before God. It was faith. It was by grace, through faith, in the Messiah, in the Christ, okay? Now, chapters uh, 4 here that we're in, verses 1 through 15, tell us what justification is not by. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by circumcision or rituals or religious observance. We could enter those words in now in 2011, and we're not saved by keeping the law. First of all, we can't keep the law. It's impossible for a man to do it. Enter in Jesus Christ who could do it. And so we see what justification is not by. And here in verse 16, we see what justification is by. And we're going to examine once again the life of Abraham. And you know, sometimes when we walk through this life, we feel like we're in it alone. You know, and each of us has our separate circumstances that no one else is going through with us right now. It really is uh, just us going through this. But then as you look deeply into it, you know, Jesus says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And not only is Jesus there with us, but Hebrews 11 speaks to this great cloud of witnesses that are kind of running alongside of us, you know, that have gone before us and have been where we're at. I have a friend that uh, is a pastor in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee now, and just a real good buddy, uh, Lindsay and, and Kelly and Jason and myself, we'd hang out almost every night before we had kids, you know. And I remember when he was training for this marathon for three months, every morning at five o'clock, he would go for a run. And then finally marathon day came and he explains it that he got up to the uh, starting line and there was so much adrenaline running through his veins and he just couldn't wait to start the race and everything's so exciting and the, you know, the, uh, the trigger is pulled and the race starts and he ran and he ran and a mile goes by out of 26 miles and all of a sudden all the adrenaline is gone. You know, you know, and it's just kind of like he's by himself as the crowd has surpassed him and it's just him and his wife and they're just kind of like, what have we done, you know? And they just plowed through the next, you know, 20, about 20 miles and just agony and, whoa, no, we didn't train hard enough. And, and occasionally throughout the race, their family would show up on the sidelines and cheer them on. And if those of you that have ever been athletes, you know, and your parents came to your game and shouted, you can remember what that was like to have that support. But their parents would show up and friends would come and shout and cheer them on. And about five miles before the end of the race, Kelly, Jason's wife, was just like, I'm going to have to drop out. I can't do it. And all of a sudden, out comes her dad, Warren, and uh, he's in his tracksuit. <laughs> And he starts running alongside of her. And he finishes the last five miles with her. And she would tell you to this day, like, it was the presence of my dad there that, that made me able to finish the race. I wouldn't have finished it. But to, to have that camaraderie, to have that charging next to me, to have that encouragement, it, it helps us. And, you know, in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul likens the Christian 
life to a race that we're running. And he says, man, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You know, guys that have gone before us. And I'm not saying that their spirit ghost is walking alongside of us, cheering us on. What I am saying is they've left us accounts of our life that are sure encouraging. Their stories speak to us and say, press on, man, press on. I've been where you're at. I'm cheering you. I'm cheering you. End well. Finish strong. It's so encouraging to have those accounts given to us. And God has a whole book of running buddies that have been given to us from Genesis to Revelation. You read Hebrews chapter 11, and it's just this whole section of running buddies that are just like, go for it, go for it, go. We've been where you're at, go for it. Don't look back. Look ahead to the finish line, the author and finisher of our faith. Look ahead to Jesus, who's also been where you're at. And so here we are in Romans chapter 4, and we're shown one of our running buddies, We're shown Father Abraham. Now, if you want to talk about an amazing race, talk about Fajah Singh, an 100-year-old man who just this year in October finished Toronto's Waterfront Marathon. And he actually had this Guinness Book of World Records title given to him that day as the oldest person and the first century whatever you, centenarian or centenarian, centenarian, I think I'm getting it, uh, to ever accomplish a race of this length. You know, this guy's a hundred years old and this secret of his athletic prowess is that for the last 20 years since he was 80, he took up running, okay? So it's never too late. If you're not 80 yet, start running, okay? 80 years old starts running. Every morning he has uh, a diet of tea, toast, and curry. Okay, so put that into your diet as well. And every morning he runs 10 miles a day and has for the last 20 years. Now he's 100 years old, okay? And this was the dream of his life to run this marathon. And he finished it. He finished it well. You can look at the YouTube video and just watch him coming in, you know, the, you know, the fourth to the last guy even, and the whole crowd cheering him on. Or you think of a gal named Ruth Firth, who's kind of a picture of Sarah to us today. Sarah's wife, or Abraham's wife, Sarah. She's a hundred-year-old from Australians who completes in the 75-year-old and older shot put, and she won the gold medal. She's the world champion for 100 to 104-year-olds of throwing a shot put four meters. So just this beautiful old lady that just trains every day and chucks these balls of steel four meters. World record. You have another guy, another Abraham-type figure living in this day and age. A hundred-year-old guy from Winnipeg set a new world record in the backstroke, uh, completing a hundred meters in three minutes and 52 seconds. Hundred years old. Another Sarah alive today. Her name's Winnie Langley. She's this iron-lunged pensioner who celebrated her 100th birthday by lighting up her 170,000th cigarette on her birthday candle. Started smoking when she was seven, when World War I broke out, okay? So who says smoking is bad for you, okay? Now, you think of these people who live today, and then you go to Abraham's day, and yeah, people were living longer, but even when the promise was given that Sarah would have a kid... She was about 80 years old, and everyone just laughed, because even back then it was just known 80-year-old gals don't have babies. Then 10 years goes by, and the promise still hadn't been fulfilled. She's 90 now, and it's even more of a laughing matter in the flesh. Sarah, is going to have a baby? Come on, get real. Now, This promise that we keep referring to, it goes back to Genesis chapter 15, but you can even go a couple chapters earlier to chapter 11 when we're introduced to Abraham. Just at the end of the chapter, just kind of laying out who Abraham is and who he was born of, what line he's from, and it just throws out a just beautiful tribute to his wife. And here's what it says. Sarah was barren and had no children. Just, isn't that nice? (laughs) That's what you have to say about me, you know, 
Chapter 11, Sarah is barren, has no children. And it's not until chapter 15, although comments have been made a few different places, like, hey, you see the sand of the earth? That's what your descendants are going to be like. I'm going to make kings and nations out of you. And then in chapter 15, four chapters later, finally, God says, hey, I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward, and I'm making you a promise. Your descendant is not going to be from Eliezer of Damascus, a, a servant in your house. Your descendants, these nations that I keep referring to, it's going to come from you, and it's going to come from Sarah. It's going to come even from this child, Isaac. All the nations are going to be blessed through this seed, through this one who is going to be born. And I'm not even talking about Isaac. And Abraham heard the promise of God and believed. And it was accounted to him as righteousness. In in verse 20, when we get down there, we're going to see that Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. We're going to just look at today, how was he strengthened in faith? You know, by the time he would finally have a child, he would be 100 years old, Sarah would be 90. Anybody looking forward to something like that happening in your life anytime soon? No. Abraham's faith was strengthened by three different things. We see it in this chapter, and we're going to get to it as we walk through. First of all, facing the facts. Facing the facts. Secondly, looking to God. And third, looking to the fulfillment of the promise. We see all this in this section. As we look at verses 16 through uh, 25, again, justification is not by works, nor by circumcision, nor by the law. But in verses 16 through 25, we see that it is by resurrection power. Resurrection power. We see that Abraham had faith in this resurrection power. You do a quick scan of the section, and in verse 18, you see that in hope he believed. Verse 19, he was not weak in the faith. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. Verse 20, he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And this basis of Abraham's faith was God. His faith was in who God was and what he does. What he's able to accomplish. He knew who his God was. That his God was the creator of the universe and that there was nothing too hard for him. And it was this kind of faith, verse 3 and verse 22 say, that was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Hebrews eleven six says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so verse 16 says, therefore it's of faith. It's a faith that it could be by grace, that it could be a gift, not a debt, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of faith in Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, verse 17, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, verse 17 starts out with this quote, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. When was this quote spoken? You go clear back to chapter 17, when God changes Abram's name from Abram, which means father. That was a joke. Dude's 90 years old, doesn't have any kids, and your name is father. That's how you get beat up in school. Um, and he he didn't have any kids. His name's father, Abram. Hey, I'm going to change your name, buddy. Oh, sweet. It's going to be something like doesn't have any kids or something like that. No, I'm going to call you Abraham now. Well, that sounds better, right? No, that means father of many nations. And he still doesn't have any kids. 90 years old with no kids and a name that says that you've got all the kids. Okay. So he says, I have made you the father of many nations. Now you might take your pen and just underline even there 
in verse 17, the word have. That's past tense. I have made you the father of many nations. This was given in Genesis 15, years before there were any kids running around in Abraham's tent. Years before anyone was calling him Abba or Daddy. This was this step of faith. It was this promise of God. I have already called you the father of many nations. And there's this incredible, beautiful scripture here at the end of verse 17 that says, He believed in God who gives life to the dead. These are big statements. And he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Don't you love, don't you just want to read that over and over and over again? God who gives life to the dead. Now, again, first of all, how was Abraham's uh, faith strengthened going through this whole promise period of having kids but being an old dude? Well, first of all, he faced the facts. You know, the facts that what the promise was was physically and physiologically impossible. Let's just face that right now. Physically and of the flesh, it's impossible. We'll never have kids. But who is the God that made this promise? It's the God who gives life to the dead and actually was in the process of giving life to the dead as he made the promise. You know, he had this ability that Abraham and Sarah didn't have. This ability to bring life into the world. Impossible with Abraham and Sarai, but more than possible with their God. Their biological clocks had tick-tocked, tick-tocked to the end. And now you have God who said this in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And even if he does die, he will live. That was Jesus speaking that. The same God that spoke to Abraham and said, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even if you were to die, I can make you live again. So don't laugh at me when I say a 90-year-old man or a 100-year-old man can have a baby. It's awesome power here that God is speaking of. Goes against the law of biogenesis. The law of biogenesis speaking that only living things can give life. A spider begets spiders through the laying of spider eggs. But a rock cannot beget rocks unless you smash it with a hammer and you get a whole bunch of little ones <laughs> and yet here is this god who says hey i can make life like that i can form a pile of dirt and say you know with my breath and boom there's adam formed from the dust of the earth abraham is it really too big of a thing for me to give you a son in your old age abraham do you have big problems and a small God? Or do you have a big God and small problems? Verse 18, talking about Abraham, says, Who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And so he's faced the facts about the given situation. As you read through the account of Abraham, chapter 11, until finally he has a kid in chapter 21, you know, you see that uh, there's constant referring to this and constant laughing about it. Constant laughing, and yet, through the lens of the cross and through the lens of faith, Paul writes it down and says, hey, even though he had no hope, he believed in hope that he could become that father. And he faces the facts about the situations, saying, I'm as good as dead. These are the facts, Sarah. We are weak. We are old. We are as good as dead. Come to 2011 and think about your situation. There's hard situations represented in this room. Death is on the horizon. 
Divorce is on the horizon. Bankruptcy is on the horizon. Homelessness is knocking at the door. Brokenheartedness. And yet you keep hearing these promises from the preaching on Sundays and at the home groups that, man, my grace is enough. My strength is enough. Just have faith in me. My strength is actually made perfect in your weakness. And we kind of develop the Abraham and Sarah, more should I say Abram and Sarai mentality of laughing at that. No, Lord, you don't get it. You're not here. You don't get that it's cold outside. You don't get that I've loved this woman for 50 years. And the doctors just told me that she's going to be taken from me. You don't get that, Lord. You don't know what I'm going through. I laugh at your promises. Hey, take a note from Abraham in verse 18. Who in contrary to hope, in hope believed. And the devil likes to speak into our heart all kind of doubts. And Abraham had those doubts. And when we do doubt, then the devil takes it another step further and condemns us and says, because you've doubted, now you're not a Christian. That's a lie from the enemy. If you are in Christ, don't let him condemn you. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about putting on the armor of God. Regularly putting on the armor of God. And one of the things you put on is the shield of faith. The same shield that Abraham had. So that the fiery darts of the wicked one could be quenched in that shield. Throw up that shield in the morning. Cry out, Lord, I am weak in faith. Give me faith. Just like you said to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, be my shield. Be my exceedingly great reward. Shield me from doubt. You know, to be strong in the faith like Abraham doesn't mean that you'll never have doubts because he did. Chapter 11 through chapter 23 is just covered with the doubts of Abraham. But Abraham never built on those doubts. He would repent of those doubts. Yeah, he was stupid at times. Lying two separate times about his wife so that he wouldn't get killed. She was a beautiful gal. Age 75, she was a beautiful woman and he was afraid that she was going to be taken by kings. So when he would go to Egypt, he'd say, let's just pretend you're my sister and let's try to get out of here alive. Some 20 years later, they go to the land of Abimelech and they say, let's just pretend that you're my sister and then we'll get out alive. Exact same thing happens every situation. Lying and doubting. Listening to his wife. Just kidding, that's not what the sin was. But you do remember in chapter 16 that Sarah doubted about the promise and said, no, no, surely, surely the Lord didn't mean through me. I mean, sure, it'll be through your seed, you know, but not through me. I'm barren. So take my maid, Hagar. And whenever a wife gives an offer like that, <laughs> no, I shouldn't say, yeah, Abraham <laughs> took her up on it. It's Abraham, what can I say? And he made an Ishmael, literally. He took matters into his own hands. But when you read Romans chapter 4, you don't see that at all. You don't see that that's even remembered. Romans chapter 4 is written through the lens of the cross who says, hey, you know what, Abraham? Forget the whole Hagar Ishmael thing. And contrary to hope, in hope he believed. Verse 20 says, he did not waver at the promises of God because God is looking at Abraham through the lens of the cross and through the lens of faith. No doubt doing stupid things, no doubt doubting, but he never built on that foundation of doubt. He always repented and went back to faith. As Douglas Moo, the commentator says, when Paul says that Abraham didn't doubt because of unbelief, he means not that Abraham never had momentary hesitations, but that he avoided a deep-seated and permanent attitude of distrust and inconsistency in relationship to God and his promises. And so today, as we have the word washed over us today, you know what your situation is, that it's a mountain that's in front of you. 
It's a barren womb that is placed in front of you. And God is saying, I will give you life. Don't allow your doubt to become deep-seated. When you see the doubt creeping in, rebuke it. Confess with your mouth, Lord, you are able. Lord, you gave Sarah, a 90-year-old lady, a baby. You're able to fulfill your promises in my life. Abraham's doubts and his mistakes, they were incidental and not fundamental to his daily walk. He would repent just like David would and and just rest upon the tender mercies of God. And there's some of you who are here today and you're building your life on these doubts. You're laughing at God. You know, at one point, I think it's Genesis chapter 17, again, the Lord reminds them of this promise that, hey, don't forget, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And at one point, Abraham fell down on his face and started laughing In the next chapter, Genesis 18, God appears outside of their tent and says, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham says, she's in my tent. Have her make us some food. And then she overhears the Lord speaking to Abraham about, hey, I'm not kidding. I am going to give you a child. And it says that Sarah laughed. She laughed and said, this is hilarious That God would think that I, in my old age, would be able to have pleasure once again and nurse Abraham's son. This is hilarious. And the Lord says, why did Sarah just laugh? And Sarah kind of pokes her head outside the tent and goes, I didn't laugh. And then God says, no, but you did. And Sarah goes, and goes back inside. (laughs) And then guess what? When When the child finally was conceived and was born... Guess what she named her son? Isaac. And guess what Isaac means? Laughter. God has given me laughter in my old age. You know, right now you are in the middle of the trial. And in the middle of the trial, or I should say in the middle of the promise. That's one of the hardest places to be. Ten, over ten years went by between I'm going to give you descendants, the number of the stars in the sky, till Isaac was finally born. And it's in the middle of that promise that it's so hard, so hard. Doubts and trying to take things into our own hands. Some people become bitter. Some people begin to build their lives upon those doubts and and upon that laughter against God and against his promises. But today the Lord would ask, do you have big problems and a little God? Or do you have little problems and a big God? Verse 19, and not being weak in the faith. I love those double negative statements that are a positive. In other words, he was strong in the faith. And not being weak in the faith, being strong in the faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. We know that he did consider that from time to time. But he never built his life on those doubts and on those considerations. And that faith that he would exercise, in in God's eyes, he just saw this unwavering, strong man of faith. Even though there was no visible hope, Abram would say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And yet, that's what we always say, right? God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Let's take that middle phrase out of there. And let's let it be, God says it. That settles it. Whether or not I believe, he is going to accomplish his promises. He's going to accomplish his word. Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith giving glory to God. So Abraham, you know, in the Genesis account, he saw his problem for what it was. And secondly, here in verse 20, we see that he looked to God, not wavering at the promise of God through unbelief, but strengthened in faith, worshiping the Lord. You want to be strengthened in your faith through this promise that you're waiting to see fulfilled? 
and, and, and to walk through the fire and to walk through the trial, you want to be strengthened in your faith? Worship. Worship. Go and spend time giving glory to God. And don't leave that place. Your faith will be strengthened as you lift God up high and get your eyes off of your present circumstances and get them on this great creator. We can get our eyes on our problem or on our body that would never produce a child. Or we can get our eyes on the God who created the universe and would have no problem forming another child. Doubts will come, but they need to be overcome through faith. He had hoped against hope. Verse 18 tells us, as John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued church father, said, it was against man's hope and hope, which is in God, that he overcame. Man's hope is so much different than hope in God. Get your hope in the Lord. If you were to Google hope today, 80% of the Google results would be financial hope. Put your trust in a bank, you know, or put your trust in, you know, it's like, man, we have no earthly hope. Let's put our hope in the one who has so far fulfilled all of his promises. They have been yes and they have been amen. And man, logical reasoning will tell us that the future promises are just as much yes and just as much amen. Put your hope in God. You know, Christianity and faith, it's not blind trust. I remember witnessing to a girl in high school and we spent about an hour just debating what our faith is in. And I remember her just kept saying, you just have blind faith. It's all you have. I just remember being like, man, this is such a logical, reasonable faith. It's not blind faith. My faith takes into account everything. I have a faith of realism. That yeah, there's going to be trials, and yeah, death may come. And suffering will happen. But he will never leave me or forsake me. The, the hope that we have, it's not a blind hope. God has communicated so much about himself to us in the word. He wants us to know who he is and what he can do. He's not glorified in some blind hope like, I don't know who my God is. Know who your God is. And, and let your feet be sunk into that foundation of who he is. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that some of the greatest saints that the church has ever known have testified to the fact that they have been attacked and assailed by doubts until the end of their lives, but they did not weaken they did not give in. They mastered their doubts. They conquered them. They overcame them. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, would every time he'd get up to preach a sermon, would be overcome with blasphemous thoughts. Just sinful, blasphemous thoughts against God. And yet through faith, he would just constantly cry out with pain in the offering as he would preach the gospel, Lord, take those thoughts away. Lord, master that doubt. Master that. Take it away. Charles Spurgeon uh, and, and um, Martin Luther battling depression. So much so that Martin Luther's wife came downstairs one day dressed in black like she was going to a funeral. And she said, and Martin Luther said, where are you going? Who died? And she said, God has died don't you ever say that. Don't you ever say God has died. And she says, then you quit living like God has died. Awesome heroes of the faith that struggled and, you know, the times where it was, man, I could just build my house on this wavering. But then they would repent of that and they would come back, even if it was daily. In Psalm chapter 73, David writes about how he looks at the world and he looks at the wicked and it just seems as though they are prospering. I mean, they are just the wealthy ones. They're having the parties. They're having the good time. How is it that they are having such a good time, but they're the wicked ones? I'm the one that has repented. I'm the one that's put my faith in God. 
And I'm kind of slodging through the quicksand here. And halfway through the chapter, he says, But then I went into the house of the Lord. Then I went into the sanctuary. Then I went into the presence of God and I worshiped. And I was given perspective. And I saw their end. That their end is condemnation. But the end of those that believe is glory. Are you going through the trial? Man, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Worship God. Get your eyes on God. Glorify God. He will give you the perspective. Verse 21, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham knew the truths about God and was fully convinced that this creator God had made a covenant that was not based on Abraham's ability to perform, but on God's ability to perform. What has God said about himself? What, what are his promises? What are his names? And throughout the scripture, you say, I have, I have, I have, God says. And then he'll give us his names. I am, I am. I am the provider. I am the, your shield. I'm your reward. You know, I am, I am the, the one who fights for you. He is and he is. What is his name? Fill your minds with who he is and just let the conviction about that sink into your heart. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul's final, final letter before he was executed. He said, I've believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. He was persuaded. He was fully convinced in who his God was. And verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. What it boils down to for us and for Abraham was do we believe that God is able to do what he has promised he would do? If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, Hebrews 11, 8. What we have is what, what I like to call the hall of faith. We see these heroes of the faith that just kept their eyes on Jesus. And you know, you have everything from just the, the, the Gideons and the Moseses, and Moses' parents are even in there. You got David and Samson and you know all these great uh, Old Testament heroes. But verse 8 of Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So when he did get to the land that God had promised, he didn't even get you know, a massive palace or anything. For his whole life, he dwelt like a vagabond in a Winnebago. You know, he lived in a tent his whole life there. And yet he had his eyes on something better, it says. Verse 10, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. You know, to look back and to say, it's been done. God has accomplished it. Look around. There's more Jews on the earth than there are stars in the sky. Abraham and Sarah keeping their eyes on the one who made the promise. And finally, they looked to God's fulfillment of the promise. The final fulfillment. Verse 23 says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Sorry, by the way, we're back in Romans 4.23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. That was just an Abraham thing. But also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Just like Hebrews 
11, that hall of faith closes with all of these great accomplishments that the Lord worked through these men of faith. All of these things. They've obtained a good testimony through faith, but they didn't receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they may not be made perfect apart from us. God is still working to this day in the Gentiles in Prineville. You know, and he knows, man, it's like he's got his little book still going in heaven of, of all the great acts of faith that we do as we know who our God is and as we walk in who our God is. That promise wasn't just for Abraham. It's for us today as well. For those who believe in him, I hope you believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The, the promise that all of the world would be blessed through Abraham's seed. Galatians tells us that he didn't say all the world will be blessed through your seeds as of many. Like just all of your kids will be a total blessing. And that was actually, it should have been. They were to be missionaries. But really what God was getting at was there will be one seed. There will be one man that comes through your loins, Abraham. And one day, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who is that seed? Paul tells us in Galatians that that seed, that heir, that, that guy from the line of Abraham was Jesus. And by Jesus being delivered up because of our sin, because of our transgressions, as Isaiah tells us, he was bruised for our iniquity. He was wounded for our transgressions. That seed of Abraham was beaten and bruised and nailed to a cross, not because of what he's done, but, we, but because of what we've done. He offered up his body as a sacrifice for the sins of the world that if anyone would believe in him, they would be blessed. They would be oh so very happy that God did not impute to their account iniquity, but the righteousness of this seed of Jesus. He was also raised up because of our justification. And I love thinking about the ascension. I love thinking about the resurrection and the ascension. The ascension is just as awesome when Jesus went back up into heaven and there was a party up there for him because his sacrifice had been accepted. The prince had gone on a mission and mission was successful. And when he got back up into the heavens, he sat back down at the right hand of the father and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to be our mediator between the father and ourselves and to just show the father, you see these nail printed hands and these nail printed feet. I have paid for Rory and I have paid for Susie and I have paid for Billy I've been raised up and I have ascended for these people's justification for their innocence. You know that Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Abraham, right on. Good faith, buddy. Leaving your country and going to a land that you know not, going to a land that you can have a special people. But you know what? You're just a foreshadowing of your great, 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 28 generations later, great son, uh, grandson, Jesus, who would leave his land, who would leave his throne in heaven and lay aside all rights and privileges of deity and become of man that he could claim for himself his own special people. And the promise is not just for the Jews, it's to anyone who would believe. Today, as we come and we take communion, as we take the bread and the cup, we remember the broken body of the seed of Abraham. We remember the shed blood of his great, 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 great grandson. And that if anyone would believe that that body was broken for them and that blood was shed for them, that they could be innocent, that they could be justified, that they could be saved and set free from sin you'll be saved. Go ahead and have the worship team come on up. Go ahead and set your Bible aside and set your things aside. And where you're at today, you can just 
bow your head and just close your eyes. Maybe just reflect on what the Lord has spoken to you today. First of all, showing you that you will not be saved and you will not be made innocent before God by the works of your flesh, by the hard labor of your hands. You will not be declared righteous before God by your religious observances or your rituals. But you will be justified if you'll surrender and if you'll rest in what Jesus has accomplished for you in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and ascension. And if by faith you would just trust in him today, you will have a mediator in heaven. You will have an attorney in heaven. That every time the Father sees you, he sees you through Jesus. And the same things will be spoken of you that they were of Abraham. That that person never doubted. That person never sinned. I forget their sins. I don't even know that they've sinned because I see them through Jesus. And just right now where you're at, you sense the Lord, you sense the Holy Spirit saying to you today, that is you. That is you. Respond to me today. Put your faith in me today like a little child. Rest in what I have done for you. Right now, just rest. Rest in him. Receive forgiveness of sins. Receive the sonship and the adoption that Jesus has made available to you right now. Just in the best way you know how and and through faith, just believe, receive, and rest in Jesus. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.